1.10am 2005 Jenny and I found that we could get the children to sleep in the car, so we spent a lot of time there. On Friday nights, we lined them in their three capsules across the back seat and went on a date, driving to Goulburn. By the time we'd done the 50 kilometres, they'd nodded off. We bought noodles and parked outside a cafe where we could look in through the window and imagine we were part of an adult world. Then we got a takeaway coffee and drove to a spot where we could overlook the Hume Highway and tell each other escape stories. Before long, we checked the little ones in the rear vision mirror and got talking about them, wishing they could grow up but still be little. Once we got as far as the coast, where we met a family from Western Australia who lived in a rough and ready mobile home. They spent their lives doing laps of the continent, crawling from beach to beach, picking up odd jobs to cover the basics. The twins in that family had just turned ten. We never set out to be wanderers, explained the mum. I guess it just happened. It didn't just happen, said the dad. Nothing just happens. You meet philosophers everywhere. The mum explained that when their twins were little, the only place they could get them to sleep at the same time was in the car. So they started doing longer and longer trips, sharing the driving while the other one got some shut-eye in the passenger seat. This had become a lifestyle. Ten years later, they were still driving around. They had done countless thousand miles. 1.30am, 2000 Most people share a bed, but everybody sleeps alone. Sleep like death is a door that you can only go through on your own. During the final week in which I was working as a priest, I was called to a suburban motel in the middle of the morning because a woman had woken that day to find her husband dead in the bed beside her. The pair had been married for 50 years but never slept apart. They had travelled together and every year made a pilgrimage to Melbourne for the spring racing carnival where they always stayed in the same room at the same inexpensive motel. It was a second home to them, so much so that once they had found the previous year's form guide under the bed, where it had remained undisturbed for twelve months. I didn't worry, said the woman. I mean, why pay for cleaning you don't need? They were a devoted, if eccentric, couple. The receptionist who greeted me said that the woman was coping with remarkable composure. Around 8am, she had rung the front office and asked if it were too late to change the order for two breakfasts to one breakfast. May I ask why? asked the receptionist, concerned that the guests could have had a problem with the food. Oh, it's just that my husband is dead in the bed. A doctor was called who duly pronounced that the husband must have slipped off his mortal coil about half past one. I don't think so, said the woman. I was watching TV. I would have noticed. Then they called me, the priest, and I was asked to sit for a few minutes with the body while the widow slipped into the little bathroom to apply her makeup. Thanks for waiting, she said, but I want to look my best. You can put the TV on if you want, although there's not much on at the moment. I don't think. I was channel surfing before you arrived. Twenty minutes later she emerged and announced that her husband looked better than he had for years. 
We knelt by the bedside, and as we prayed, the woman reached across and held the hand of her dead husband, a gesture I found comforting, despite the fact that it wasn't supposed to be me who needed the comfort. It was the first sign that the body in the bed was anything more to her than a stage prop. Later, I tried to suggest to her that she might be in shock because someone so familiar to her, who shared her bed for 50 years, had just slipped away without so much as a backward glance, without even ruffling the sheets. That, she replied, is the sign of a really good mattress. These events struck me as a little odd, and yet, as I mentioned the story to others, I heard a number of accounts of people waking to find a dead partner in the bed beside them, although nobody else had encountered a bereaved person with the presence of mind to ring room service to cancel a breakfast that wouldn't be required. Dying in your sleep sounds like the perfect solution to a tricky problem, but it can be troubling for those who were attached to you but didn't notice you go. Some people leave this life with less fuss than they leave a car park. When J. M. Barry's Peter Pan first appeared in novel form in 1911, it was called Wendy and Peter, and included the controversial line, To die will be an awfully big adventure. Bedford's original illustration uses this line as a caption to a picture of Peter looking out across a beautiful sea. The waters are perfectly still. Sleep can be a profound form of absence. That's why Santa and the Tooth Fairy and the Sandman all come at night. They know that your body is in the bed, but that you yourself have slipped out for a moment so they can do their thing. Some years ago, I received a call from the Essendon Police Station a homeless man had wandered into the station and handed my wallet across the counter. I thanked the officer, but told him that this was impossible as my wallet was in my bedside drawer, where I'd put it the night before. At the time, I was living in a terrace house belonging to a religious community. My bedroom was upstairs and at the back. Access was provided by a flight and a half of creaky stairs. The door was tight in the jam and often it needed a shoulder to persuade it to let anyone in. I'm sorry, officer, but that could never have happened. I didn't go into the salubrious details of religious accommodation. It must belong to someone else, I concluded. Just to be sure, I went upstairs to check. My keys were in the drawer where I'd put them, so were my sunglasses. This was the place I emptied my pockets every night. If I ever wore cufflinks, I suppose they would have been there too, and a mobile phone, if they'd been invented yet. But the wallet was gone. I rang the officer back. The man says he got the wallet during the night from an upstairs room at the back of a terrace house. I think I need to come and see it, I said. It turns out that the man had been into the room in the small hours, slipped around my bed, and pilfered the wallet while I was asleep, and I never noticed a thing. Where were you all this time? asked the officer. I was in bed, asleep, dead to the world. You may as well have been anywhere, I suppose. The officer suggested that the priests could use this story in their recruitment campaigns 
to tell people what a blissful life we led, undisturbed by pangs of conscience. The problem was that I was the only person in the house who did sleep well. I don't know how the chap knew where to look in that room, I said to one of my brethren. He just followed the snoring. Two o six a.m. two thousand and seven. As he approached his fourth birthday, we decided it was time for our Benedict to start making his own bed. All we wanted him to do was to pull up his blankets and put his pajamas under his pillow. We soon lightened up on the second requirement, as the pillow was needed to shelter all the little toys which Benny took with him on the journey to the land of Nod. So there wasn't much room left for pajamas. We concentrated instead on getting him to arrange the doona neatly. He was resistant to the idea. If God made the world, he asked, why can't He make my bed? It's not a bad question. I wish I knew the answer. A God made the world so you'd have a place to make your bed. I ventured, not really sure of my theological footing, but relieved that Benny was at least prepared to think about what I'd said. So,、um, why does Mummy make your bed? He asked. Bed making is one of our culture's more curious forms of behaviour. I suppose that just as we need reassuring rituals to get us into bed, so too do we need them to get us out of it again. Making the bed is a way of putting the world in order at the start of another day. It's a comforting work of fiction. In a few minutes. You can impose order and regularity on the tangle of sheets and blankets that represent the third of your life, over which you have least control. The hours you've spent in the land of Nod, a country whose name sounds like a children's pet name. In fact, the land of Nod was the place to which Cain, the Bible's first but by no means last murderer, was exiled after he'd killed his brother Abel. His punishment. Was never to belong anywhere. The word "nod" means wanderings, an evocative description of sleep. I thought that perhaps our Benny needed the firm hand of Florence Nightingale, a demon for making beds. She was the mother of that fine innovation in the deployment of bed linen, the hospital corner. She wrote, "A true nurse will always make her patient's bed carefully herself." But a four-year-old is too young for Miss Nightingale. We simply tried to explain that a new day was a wonderful thing, containing lots to look forward to, and making your bed was a way of getting ready for it. That night, Benny appeared between us in our bed. I looked across to the clock radio. It was two o six a.m. Benny, I said as mildly as possible, "It's nice to see you, but you have your own bed, so why don't you go back there?" I can't," he said. "I've already made it." Three ten a.m. two thousand and six. Very early one Sunday morning, when Jacob and Claire were just a year old, Jenny and I both found ourselves awake in bed at the same time. We were anxious. Without saying anything, we had an eerie intuition that something in the house was wrong. We didn't know what it was, but things were not right. The whole place felt unfamiliar. Suddenly, it dawned on us what the problem was. 
the house was quiet. Most new parents know that uncertain feeling of stepping into a silent baby's room with a doubt at the back of your mind that perhaps the little one has stopped breathing in the night. A quick check reassured us that the children were all fine. They had simply decided to try a new idea, one which had never entered their minds before, which was to all sleep simultaneously. We were amazed. We knew that this rare occurrence had been described in some of the medical literature, but we never believed it could happen to us. At this point, we could have slipped into the lounge and watched the early morning Sunday religious shows on TV, called it strength of character, but we managed to resist the temptation. Instead, we decided to make hay before the sun shone. We went back to bed and indulged in what, when I was a priest, we used to refer to coyly as intimacy. It had been some little time since both the opportunity and inclination had fallen our way at the same time, but we soon found that the different parts of ourselves that come in handy for sex had neither rusted nor withered during their break. We dusted ourselves off and got on with the game. Before long, Jenny was making those lovely noises which, if I may flatter myself for a moment, suggested to me that she was having a pleasant time. The noises gradually got louder. We might wake the kids, she gasped. Call it revenge, I replied. Our luck held and we were left to our pleasures for the moment. After an interlude we started again, this time noisier than before. Matters were reaching a crescendo when we heard a plaintive voice from the foot of the bed. We hadn't noticed, but our almost three-year-old Benny had crept into the room in his Captain Hook pyjamas. He was concerned by what was taking place. Don't worry, Mummy, he announced. I'll rescue you.